and thanks for listening to the Healthcare 360 podcast brought to you by Beth Israel Leahy Health. I'm Rob Fields, the Executive Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer. I'm here with Melissa Schuyler. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good morning, Rob. So as we talked about, we have this podcast that we've created to really have conversations with various system leaders and other leaders in the industry to really tackle the, the complexities of healthcare and try to figure it out uh, via conversation. So we're excited to have you on today to help put a piece of the puzzle in. I'm glad to be here. I'll do my best. <laughs> well, Melissa, if you can tell us a little bit about how you how you landed here, how did you get to be <laughs> Melissa Schuyler you know, running you'd, BILH? You'd have, to talk to, you'd have to talk to my mother about how did I get to be Melissa Schuyler, <laughs> um, and she would have some colorful things to this share This is not with a you. therapy podcast. <laughs> oh, I'm in the wrong room. Um, so I'm, as Rob said, Melissa Schuyler, Vice President for Government Affairs at Beth Israel Leahy Health, and I've been really lucky to kind of get to this position, I think, and I would say that It's um, really been about sort of luck and kind of happenstance that I've ended up this far in healthcare. Mm -hmm. It was certainly not an area that I studied or that I had, you know, a driven passion or um, identity towards. I started in healthcare over more than a dozen years ago. And I went into healthcare starting at Tufts Medical Center after having worked in government and in private consulting because someone said, if you have an opportunity to go work for Ellen Zane, who was then the CEO of Tufts Medical Center, Mm I said, she's a rock star. If you have an opportunity to go work for her, you should go work for her. Oh, wow. So I had that opportunity, and I haven't looked back. And through through Ellen and then in being able to work at Tufts Medical Center, um, in a smaller system, you get to sort of roll up your sleeves and right. wear a whole bunch of different hats. Right. So that really allowed me to dabble in a whole bunch of different areas of healthcare and really be a part of a team that felt like, we were making a difference in patients' lives, and we were able to kind of be a part of solutions and solving, right. you know, issues together and, you know, on your own, really rolling up your own sleeves. So that developed a pretty significant passion for me in healthcare and in loving the complexity of it. And so being on the delivery side as opposed to, I, I imagine if policy is really what drives you and, and where your passion is, but taking the part of policy that and marrying it with the delivery care seems to be what has really resonated with you, being closer to that impact, is that? Yeah, oh, I do love the policy side of that, right? Yeah. I love thinking about how the external side, whether it's external in government and some of the pure policy leaders, mm-hmm. whether it's external in the academic area of mm-hmm. it, or if it's external to other parties, whether they're industry organizations like our own industry organizations in healthcare or our business entities like Chambers of Commerce or something like the Mass Taxpayers Foundation. Really thinking about what our role is in addressing some of the policy imperatives of the day, whether those are policy imperatives that have to do with us as an employer, as a large part of the ecosystem, as an economic driver. So those could be things like workforce issues, transportation issues, housing issues, education issues. And then also thinking about our own, you know, what we're doing at the end of the day, how we're delivering healthcare, and what our role is in working with those external policy members to really shape and educate together what we're trying to either fix or change or enhance. So speaking about fixing, and part of the goal of this podcast is to have conversations with different stakeholders that have probably some commonalities, certainly around healthcare, but also around the idea that there are parts of it that don't work well. And I'm new to Massachusetts, uh, now three and a half months in, and really it feels like Massachusetts has taken some proactive steps, at least in trying to address it. We, you know, we have some conversation about how successful or not it has been, but certainly they've taken several steps to try to get there. One of them is the Health Policy Commission, which is unique to Massachusetts, I think, compared to other states. If you don't mind 
grounding us a little bit as to what the HPC is and what it was trying to do, yeah, what it he- is trying to do. That's great. Um, the Health Policy Commission, as you noted, is really, um, I think, used to be novel. I think there are several states now who have tried to copy that because they've seen the value and the benefit that it can provide to a state. And about a decade ago, Massachusetts recognized, they'd spent a lot of years really recognizing that we have a really expensive healthcare ecosystem. We also have an inequitable healthcare ecosystem for the outstanding world-class care that we provide, the amazing innovation and research that happens here, but also as they were starting to see the landscape shift for community hospitals for some of our disproportionate share providers who are really caring for more than a number of other providers, more than their sort of fair share of Medicaid and Medicare patients. Mm -hmm. So the state really started to see that. The state also started to see and start to understand, and this sort of was driven by work out of the Attorney General's office, that there were inequities in how providers were paid as well. So the inequities in access to care, the inequities to the resources, were starting to match up with the inequities in the amount of reimbursement and in resources that some institutions were able to garner over others using their market leverage. Fast forward more, what the legislature wanted to do in conjunction with a lot of the other, with the business organizations and with both other government entities and with the providers and with the payers, was say, okay, are there government institutions that we could put in place that will help us monitor what's going on here, that will help us watch the trends and create a little bit more transparency Mm -hmm. around who's using market leverage? What does that market, market leverage look like? And is it impacting the cost, the quality, and the access to care? And that is where the Health Policy Commission, in addition to a sister agency, the Center for Health Information and Analysis, were really born together to help us collect data about the healthcare ecosystem, and particularly hospitals and um, physicians and provider Mm -hmm. groups. And then also with input and data and information from the payers who are in this space as well. And then looking also more specifically as they embarked on looking at larger bodies of data and information, when there are transactions that were going to happen in the state, how could we keep track of them? How could we determine whether or not this is going to be better for the Commonwealth? Would it enhance access? Would it enhance quality of care? Would it make prices go up? Would it create affordability issues? Um, To the extent that they could analyze those things, the Health Policy Commission has tried to really get into that space. They've also gone into um, a number of other areas. I think they've sometimes become the go-to agency for the legislature on other policy issues. So they've looked at workforce issues. They've looked at maternal health issues. Mm -hmm. And they've become more of a data and analysis, a little bit more of a policy shop in some areas on particular issues. Like an internal think tank, essentially, on healthcare to some degree? For the state, yeah. For the state. And they've been a really yeah. good discussion forum. So mm-hmm. we haven't all always agreed on their approach or some of the right. findings, but it's been a really important forum for discussion about important issues and for really pushing the envelope in a deliberate way on particular areas like equity and access and understanding what happens when consolidation occurs in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that a move like that from the state government is signaling the importance of healthcare not just as a commodity but as a public good and a public service right it seems to me like if you're involving yourself as a state in the normal discourse that happens between payers and systems and markets to that degree it feels like in this I'm framing this as a as a 
as a hypothesis for you to react to because you've been here longer than I have, obviously. It feels like they're intervening because they view it as uh, a public good that has to serve. It's beyond just market forces, right? We have to be able to even out the outcomes and impacts. Is that a fair statement? I think it is at the broadest level. You're right. The way that Massachusetts has viewed healthcare as that public good, I think, goes way back into our own history, right? Because if you start back in 2006 when we instituted healthcare reform, trying to get universal mm-hmm. coverage, so mm-hmm. we would consider that Chapter 58, as they refer to it, as really the work that demonstrated government, businesses, healthcare providers can come together because we believe as a state our citizens should have access to healthcare right. and providing them with coverage they saw as the first step. So it really is embedded in who we are as a state. Mm -hmm. It's a part of a value that you hear, you know, even our latest governor too saying, when we think about the quality of life in Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. this is a fundamental underpinning of who we are. And we have a lot of services that we expect to be covered. And we do expect that access to care is going to be available to as many citizens as possible, whether they're documented or undocumented citizens, or or no matter where they are on the socioeconomic scale, that we can provide access to the amazing care that we have. You mentioned it in your earlier comments about the equity or lack thereof of outcomes, which isn't unique to Boston. It's in every market. I just came from New York. We have sort of the major issues there. But Boston is, and New York, frankly, are, are different than other parts of the country, I think, because of the heavy brands that come with them in terms of systems, right? We have, and I think Boston in particular, because of the very academic nature of the city, of the state, um, it bleeds, it feels to me like it bleeds into healthcare in terms of this is the best care, the most advanced innovative care from a research and innovation standpoint in some cases in the world. However, with that, there are affordability issues that frankly come with that, right? And do you have an opinion either as a citizen of the state and of Boston in terms of do you think that feeds into inequity to some degree? I think you're right that if you tie those two questions together, you've just asked me about it being a public good. Yeah. And do we have a cost problem? And does that cost problem inhibit access to all of our citizens? In the state, I think we've consistently looked at it with that lens of where is the cost and affordability and access balance? Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of the work that has been done from our policy leaders and continues to be focused on from our policy leaders and very much from, from providers themselves mm-hmm. is that we feel and own the responsibility to be efficient stewards of the money that we receive to provide and deliver mm-hmm. the care that we feel is appropriate and necessary. Right. And including being innovative in that care, right? Providing and pushing the envelope to provide that cutting edge care, investing in it. Right. And investing in the growth of our own workforce. Right. A lot of the work has really, I think, from the Health Policy Commission, from the Center for Health Information and Analysis, and from our policymakers for many, many years, has really been focused on trying to strike that balance. Right. Making sure they understand, too, how are we really demonstrating that we are creating affordability? They've constantly listened to the small businesses who've said, I can't afford a 15 increase in my insurance premiums. I want to employ as many people as possible. I don't want to have to make them choose, or I don't want to have to choose as an employer between another employee or health insurance coverage. But you're seeing a lot of those shifts constantly happen as employers make decisions. And we really maintain, we, I say as BILH, our own role at the table of trying to make sure we're engaged in understanding what the needs and the pressures are for 
businesses large and small mm -hmm. for government, which is a huge amount of the money, you know, and the resources right. that go into that come from our budget, that come from our tax dollars, and that go into healthcare. So I think we we want to make sure that we're playing a responsible and informative role on how much does it cost to deliver care. Massachusetts is also a really expensive state in which to deliver so healthcare. Yeah, yeah, sure. Right? Our workforce is expensive, our energy is expensive, our housing is expensive, our transportation is expensive. So there's a balance there to making sure we're sharing openly what does it cost us? Mm -hmm. And being efficient stewards and engaging in that conversation where we're collectively saying, okay, what do you want out of your healthcare system? Mm -hmm. What does access to those healthcare services look like? Right. How broadly can we spread that access? And who should bear the cost? Related to all of those concepts is the newest iteration of the Medicaid waiver. Um, so Massachusetts has also been a leader in that space as well. I wasn't here for the first one, so I'm just coming into it with the second round of this and sort of seeing how it's designed with some really clear themes around equity and, to your point, how we deliver care for all. Can you speak a little bit, of, maybe if there's a little bit of a history of the first one and what learnings were, and what's your take on what the state was trying to accomplish with this new one? Well, I don't want to speak for the state, um, but I can say as a citizen, a total, yeah, as, a, as, as a citizen, like really deeply engaged in, in healthcare, care. Um, and I'll, I'll geek out here because the work of the 1115 waiver and the evolution that it is, the state works with CMS and the federal government in these five year chunks mm -hmm. to work on what we kind of call a contract under Medicaid. And there is a regular set of rules and regulations that every state works under in the codes, the 1115 codes, that dictate how the states can receive federal funding. And lots of states will go to the federal government and say, we have special, unique sort of quirks and traits that we want to try out or that we think better represent what our communities look like, what our patients and our citizens need, and the construct of our healthcare and the construct of our government process to help deliver some of that. And Massachusetts has specifically carved that out with the state for, you know, a number of years and really continued to build on that, what we call the 1115 waiver. And our Medicaid program is called MassHealth. They started that in the previous one in developing the ACO and the accountable mm -hmm. care model with a more, they didn't develop it, but they really dug in and said, we're going to get you all on board with this Medicaid ACO program. Right. We're going to have our primary care providers feel like they have ownership and that they have a longitudinal view of caring for their patients instead of that episodic view, right. which is the beauty of moving into a population health model yeah. like that. And then you're right, this next iteration of the 1115 waiver, I'm, I'm really excited about and proud to say we've been a part of it because it's been this amazing collaboration with the state in really crafting a proposal to CMS and with the providers, particularly with the hospitals, and that was largely to the credit and led with the partnership between the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association, our providers helping to inform that, and the state. It was a really great collaborative series of sessions, as many months that lead up into this, and it's shown really great continuity between the Baker administration having worked through this and put it all on the table, worked it out and agreed to it with CMS, and now the Healy administration taking that out right. and executing it. You know, you mentioned the health equity piece of this. That's been, I think, a really cutting edge area. And if there is a large body of transformational health equity work being done in Massachusetts, it's being delivered through the 1115 waiver. Mm -hmm. and we've spent some time working on that with teams right. here at Beth Israel Leahy Health as we've thought about what's our role, our role in the through the ACO work in our primary care offices and in thinking about how we are really connecting those social services in with the medical care that our, that our patients are getting. Right. 
And then also, you know, throughout our system and our hospital leaders in that individual care, as soon as someone walks into, you know, is it the emergency department? Is it coming in for a surgery? Is it coming in for specialty ambulatory care? Thinking about what those foundational elements are that are going to help us capture and address those health equity Mm -hmm. measures so that we can capture it, measure it, look at what needs to be changed and really create that change. That's the exciting work. Yeah, it's super and exciting. It's happening at such a scale because of this waiver. Right. That's where we're going to see the transformational work. I'm familiar with the waiver in New York, and, and there's there are the policy pieces that hopefully influence exactly what you just said, right? They create some fertile ground for innovation in a space that's directed towards the, the goals of the waiver. Can you talk a little bit about some of the specifics here? How Because everyone interprets that differently, right? right, depending on who participates in the waiver. Maybe some of the things that you're most excited about specifically here as in that context. Yeah. To start with in those, there are a lot of exciting things. And I think it's a tension almost between it's exciting because there's a view that we aren't just treating someone when they come in and they say, oh, I have a specific rash or I've got a heart palpitation or I'm short of breath mm-hmm. or I'm really dealing with some other behavioral health and mental health issues. It's thinking about that clinical care that someone needs, what is their diagnosis, what is their treatment, and then starting to think about and look at what are the circumstances around that patient that are influencing that, mm-hmm. that are going to influence the success and you know of their treatment, but that could help augment it and ensure that we get a better outcome for a patient. That wraparound of social services, you know, as I said, it's a tension because we're healthcare providers. We're not housing providers. We're right. not right. food providers. We're not transportation providers. We are employers, but we're not out there to be an employment agency. Right. So there's a, a healthy tension between sort of saying these are social and often government roles, mm-hmm. but we're taking on some responsibility in that by saying, okay, but we see our role in that. We see where we can be the focal point that allows someone to have a trusted advisor, starting with their healthcare provider, right. to think about and talk about those issues and then get connected to the services. So we're really engaging in that. We're seeing it in our primary care offices where a case manager is helping to assess if someone has housing stability. Do they have nutritional needs? If they have a nutritional need after having just been diagnosed with diabetes or with hypertension, should we be connecting with them with something like community servings, which will help deliver medically tailored meals that might actually better influence their final outcome on treatment to managing a disease, right? right? Or to really stemming what could be pre-diabetes. So can can we influence and connect those things? That's exciting. It pushes us into an area that is social services, where we're also leaning into but our core is in providing care, healthcare. And we see that, you know, another really exciting area that we're looking at across all of our modes, whether they're in our clinics or in our hospitals, is data gathering. Really looking at knowing who our patients are, right? We talk so often about mm-hmm. you can't change it if you can't measure it. So with that foundational work that is creating a standard platform for measuring some of the social, some of the ethnic, racial, language, gender identity that we're really capturing down to the patient level so we can start to see, okay, who are we treating? Right. And that will help us measure too, are there disparities in the outcomes right. and the ways that we're, the people are getting treatment? You know, it goes to your point of like, you're, you're kidding, we haven't gotten it right, we're not perfect, like right. shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> but this is part of us recognizing that and then being able to harness the power of that data and information. Right, I, I have viewed it, those of you that know my work in the past, I've framed it, if we're only see ourselves as a deliverer of services. That's one way that you you position yourself in a specific way in the market. If you see yourself as a health system, as the deliverer of outcomes and of health, that's a whole different thing. And then you can't 
separate really the connection to those social care services to the health outcomes, right? But operationalizing that is really challenging for a million reasons. The economics right. don't always align. Well, right? Yes, I was about to say, as is paying for it. Right, <laughs> right. And how we pay for it. And, you know, I have a specific opinion about the role of value-based care and paying for that. But that Ooh, is that's another cha- podcast. Is it? It is probably multiple <laughs> podcasts. But that's the challenge from a policy and operations perspective is that, you know, my guess is that state and federal governments, I know most states share this idea that they see the role of healthcare often as a deliverer of outcomes, and not every health system views themselves as that, I think. I don't know if you have a different opinion. I think it is a challenge. We see that challenge every single day as we try to figure out, okay, what revenue do we have to support what we need to deliver, and are we delivering health overall, or are we delivering a specific treatment set? And if you're the delivery company out there and you bought a healthcare plan, you thought, okay, I bought a healthcare plan that's going to cover if my patients get hospitalized, if my employees get hospitalized, right. if my patients, my, my employees need dental care. Now they're really pushing to say, how deep can I get into providing them with, you know, mental health care? Right. But they didn't think, am I supposed to also make sure that I'm providing them with a health plan that makes sure that they have, you know, Food housing. housing so, exactly. Yeah. Right. 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 And, and that, is I think where the tension is we have to keep having these conversations to sort of say, how will we afford to do these things? And keep pushing too about where our focal point is, right? What's our role in doing that? Because we have a really important role. We have a trusted viewpoint. We can see things and have conversations with patients that most other people can't. But there's a caution in owning too much of that and making sure that the other responsible parties in our community play a role too, exactly. And we have to make sure that we continue to to embrace that and bring people into the conversation. Right. I think too often sometimes we're sort of like, oh, well, I guess you said I was supposed to make sure I could provide people with housing supports. Right, and walk away. And right. yeah. yeah, and and either just try to figure it out because that's what we do a lot. We're problem solvers. Well, we'll just figure that out, right? We'll, right. we'll add we'll one more. Th- on yeah, we'll add one yeah. more thing. But I think the state in Massachusetts is cognizant of that too, right? In shaping this 1115 waiver in the ACO contract, there is a specific expectation that we are partnering with community providers who will help address those specific issues in housing, in nutrition, in some of the other consistent areas where we see a need for social services, but that aren't our area of expertise, mm-hmm. right? It's, I think that's something we have to learn a little bit more of, which is, right. I'm not an expert here. It's okay to say that about some things yeah. and find the right partner who is, right. right? Because people come to us to be an expert in something we love when that happens. Yeah. But it's not everything. Yeah. I have the humility to figure out where to go for help. Yeah. And that sounds like a, a good way to kind of close because we're leaving lots more questions on the table for a future episode. So we'll probably have you back if that's all right. Sounds good. Melissa, thank you so much for what you do and for your time today. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to do it with the teams that I get to work with. Absolutely. Thank you. And if you like us on however you listen to podcasts, please leave a review and uh, look forward to more conversations to come.